0: Greetings and welcome to episode 31 of Beyond Hua Xia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today we have the mother of all topics, a blockbuster one, the 1911 revolution. Okay, an event that is more than any other associated with the beginning of the modern Chinese states. Okay, and the legacy of the 1911 revolution uh, has, a, has a direct impact um, on what's going on in the Chinese world today. Okay, the 1911 revolution... October 10, 1911 is when it begins, is pretty much the only 20th century political event that both Nationalist Party, the Nationalist Party that will be later led by Chiang Kai-shek, founded uh, by Sun Yat-sen, and then eventually will take power in the 1920s and 30s, be the main government on China when they're fighting the Japanese in World War II, and then eventually lose the Civil War and flee to Taiwan, where the government still exists today. Um, The nationalists can agree that October 10th, 1911 is a wonderful event. Okay, they trace the origins of their own legitimacy back to that event. Um, And then the Chinese Communist Party, the one that's in power today on the mainland, also can embrace the 1911 revolution. Okay, later on, there's going to be very, very little that these two political parties will be able to agree on. But for, you know, for now, the 1911 revolution is something that they can both say, this was wonderful. Uh, we, our roots of the modern Chinese state date back to this time. Um, and we take great pride in commemorating the 1911 revolution okay um, now they both interpret it slightly differently okay they have little tweaks here and there about what they think about the 1911 revolution. Um, in China on the mainland now in the PRC, they actually the 1911 revolution October 10th Shuang 10 double ten um, in the you know the 10th day of the 10th month so they refer to it as the double ten holiday. Um, it's been overshadowed a little bit. Um, by the uh, founding of the communist state in 1949. They decided that the new state was going to be uh, officially promulgated on October 1st. And so October 1st is sort of the really big holiday um, on mainland China today. I've always wondered why they chose October 1st. Uh, They knew that it was very close to October 10th, which was the big date of the revolution. Um, And the establishment of the PRC in 1949, they could have chosen any day they wanted to. It was largely an arbitrary, date. Uh, It wasn't like that was the date that they finally kicked Chiang Kai-shek out of the mainland or won a major military campaign or anything like that. Um, They just decided October 1st was going to be the day that we formally announced the beginning of the new state. They'd already knew they were going to win and consolidated power long before that. Um, so anyways, you do get the somewhat awkward juxtaposition of the biggest holiday on the mainland now being October 1st. And then just nine days later, they've got another holiday, which they don't repudiate. Just like from Taiwan, they both say this is a great holiday. So then you also have that just nine days later. Um, now on Taiwan today, it's uh, obviously October 1st means nothing to them. That's the, that's the holiday of the founding of the mortal enemy. Uh, So it's still October 10th. Uh, If you're in Taiwan, uh, October 10th is the only major political holiday then, uh, dating back to the early 20th century, that you commemorate. Obviously, you're not going to commemorate October 1st. Okay, now, for this talk today, where are we going to pick up? Chronologically, we're picking up after our Qing Envoys to the West lecture. Okay, Qing Envoys to the West, remember that was 1860s to the 1890s. All right, And there we were seeing how despite increasing interest and understanding of what makes the West tick, what makes the West strong, uh, ultimately those Qing official envoys came back with various interpretations of what they saw in Europe and America and they said... They're different. Some things are better, some things are worse. We probably have a common root way back in antiquity. They probably stole and copied and plagiarized a lot of their wonderful things for, from us long ago. Uh, ultimately, we found another great civilization, but uh, we didn't see anything that tells us that we're facing an existential crisis and we need to change our t, our essence, to accommodate them. We just need to, to adopt some more Jung utility. All right. The cleverness that we saw of the West. Let's just sort of understand what clever mechanisms and inventions that they've come up with, and then we'll be strong. Okay. But our tea, our essence is great. All right. And we know that this is finally shattered, not by a Western state, a Western empire. It's shattered by the Japanese in 1895. Okay, that's when you finally get the existential crisis that is perceived within Asia, that is brought to China's shores by another Asian who had previously been looked down upon as vastly inferior as barbarians. That's how they referred to the Japanese. Okay, this is what shocks them out of the sense of complacency that many of the top officials in the Qing dynasty may have had before. Okay, now, in order to narrate The final 15, 16 years of the Qing Dynasty until we get to the 1911 revolution. We can't just begin on October 10th, 1911. Alright, I know you're, we're we're, we're itching, we're so excited to get into the 20th century, right? (laughs) And I've been teasing it for so long, but I'm sorry. You're going to have to wait just a little bit longer because we still have some really important things from the 19th century that we need to talk about. First and foremost, who is the most powerful statesman in the Qing Dynasty? After 1895, all right. in order to understand the course of events that's going to lead up to and create the conditions that make possible the 1911 uprising in the city of Wuchang along the Yangtze River, okay, we need to understand who's in power and what their interests are. And this brings us to a fascinating, fascinating figure, the Empress Dowager Cixi. Very difficult name to pronounce if you don't know Chinese. It's spelled in current day transcription as C-I-X-I. Okay. Xi. Who is Cixi? Cixi is, in short, she was uh, one of the consorts of the Xianfeng Emperor in the 1950s. Not his primary wife. She wasn't the empress. Okay. She was one of the consorts. And the, each emperor has many consorts. She was a high-ranking consort. Uh, but that was because she gave birth to a son, okay? Originally, she was relatively low status in the harem, all right? But remember, the way that a woman gains status in Chinese society is to give birth to a son, okay? And if that son ends up, if you're in a political arena and you're not just a peasant in the fields, if that son ends up being the only surviving male heir to the emperor, And suddenly his mother has her status increased significantly. Okay, so Sisi manages to get pregnant and give birth to a son, who will eventually become the Tongzhi emperor in the 1860s. Okay, now the primary wife of the Xianfeng emperor, the actual empress, is a woman by the name of Cian, another really hard to pronounce name uh, if you don't know Chinese. So th- 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 uh, this name is spelled C-I, and then usually you put an apostrophe in there, C-I-A-N, Cian, Ci and Cian. all right, Cian is the empress, okay, now in theory on paper she outranks Ci who is merely one of the, you know, originally uh, basically a concubine, elevated up to the status of a higher ranking consort when she gives birth to a son. Um, but then Sian never gives birth to a son. Okay? So this sort of gives you this awkward position in which you have two women who formally, the ranking, the hierarchy is clear, but informally, the person on top never gave birth to a son. So she doesn't have the leverage or the prestige that comes with that and the lower-ranking consort does give birth to a son, and it ends up being the only surviving son. So, after the Second Opium War, when the British and French uh, decide to invade Beijing and lay siege to the Old Summer Palace as a lesson to the, the Xianfeng Emperor for his alleged perfidy and betrayal in the eyes of the British and the French uh, for not upholding the provisions of the First Unequal Treaty, the Treaty of Nanjing in 1842, as a result of the First Opium War, when they decide to invade Beijing, this is, this, is, this is a major shock. The barbarians are actually coming in now to our capital, and they flee. They flee out to Jehol, um, the Manchu summer hunting grounds, a little bit more to the north of Beijing. Okay, uh, The Xienfeng Emperor flees there, and he ends up dying. He ends up dying in 1861. Okay, He's ill. He was never a particularly effective or brilliant emperor to begin with. Um, and he dies basically in exile. He doesn't even die in Beijing. He never comes back. All right, and it's at this moment of the Xianfeng Emperor's death that you have a crisis. There is no adult male heir. There's, in fact, only one male heir at all, and he's underage. Way too young. Okay? So, Cian, the empress, who formerly is the most powerful woman, ends up teaming together with Cixi, the second most powerful woman, but, you know, in actuality, somewhat more powerful because she has a son who is the heir apparent. Uh, they team together along with some of uh, one of the most powerful princes, Prince Gong. And they sort of initiate a coup and take power in the court as regents for the boy emperor. This is how you do it. okay? And you exercise power in the name of an adolescent male heir. And for five, ten years or so, until he comes of age, you're able to basically impose your will upon him and do whatever the hell you want. Now, fortunately for the relationship between Si and Cixan, uh Cian doesn't seem to have had a whole lot of political ambition. She was actually content to let Si sort of take charge. Cixi had tons of political ambition. Okay, and she turned out to be quite an adept politician. Cian was not. Right, you can actually see this in some of the portraits that survive of these two women. Uh, w- women. an sits there in a traditional female pose, looking very demu- uh, demure. Okay, in the f- uh, 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 portraits of Tz'si that have survived, she has a book by her side. You don't put a book by the side of a woman in a formal portrait, okay, suggesting that she's educated. All right, she's entering the male realm. Later portraits of Tsussi will also show her uh, uh, including a yellow dragon armband on the sleeve of her clothing. Something, again, that usually is associated with the emperor. She does these small little things to gradually accumulate a little more power, be a little more bold, push the boundaries further and further. Okay? So for the 1860s and early 1870s, it's Si, Cian, Prince Gong, and their allies in the Qing court who are basically calling the shots. And that's several people. That's at least three major figures, even though Cian doesn't have a whole lot of interest. Maybe two major figures. Okay. And then the Tongzhi emperor, Cixi's son, the, em- the Xianfeng emperor's son, uh, he finally comes of age. Now, when he comes of age, he tries to exercise power, and oftentimes that creates conflict. And Cixi doesn't really want the Tongju emperor to assume power. The Tongzhi emperor refuses to marry Cixi's preferred empress. All right, one way that Cixi could gain control over her son would be if when he marries, he marries a woman who comes from Cixi's own clan, own Manchu clan, the Yihanara clan. And Tongju refuses, he doesn't want that match. He knows that would give more power to his mother. Okay. Um, this creates tension between them. There's a wonderful surviving uh, uh, painting that depicts the Tongzhi Emperor and Cixi playing a game of chess, Chinese chess. And for a long time, uh, art historians weren't sure who the man in the picture was. They weren't sure uh, who it was. They thought maybe it was a eunuch or one of the officials. And we've now been able to identify beyond a doubt that the man pictured playing chess with uh, Cixi is indeed the Tongzhi Emperor. Okay, it's a wonderful allegory <laughs> for what Sisi is doing at this time. She wants to hold power, and her son has become an obstacle to the exercise of power by a woman because he's coming of age now. He's older, and so in the picture, if you look at the alignment of the chess pieces, Sisi appears to be winning. It's a wonderful photo. I mean, it's not, it's not a photo; it's a wonderful portrait. Imagine the audacity of that! The boldness. They have a painting done in which you're playing chess, a game of competition, with your son, the emperor, and you're beating him in chess. Okay? Uh, so there's some tension there. All right. Now, ultimately, the Tongzhi emperor dies quite young. He dies in the early, early, early 1870s. I think it's 1872, 1873, right around there. Okay? And he's only like in his late teens or early 20s. He's not very old. I, I, I think, I think it's, a, it's a sickness. There's nothing nefarious about it. There will be something nefarious later on about the death of the next emperor. And so this is when Tsi is really able to start to exercise real power. Is when her son dies, then we need a new emperor. The son didn't have a son. So now the, that line has truly been broken. So Tsi then does what any regent, male or female, would do in her position. She picks a weak, underage uh, nephew, the Guangxu Emperor. And the Guangxu Emperor, get used to that name, because he's going to be around for over 30 years. I think he takes the throne in 1874, I believe. Okay, And the Guangxu Emperor is much more pliable than her previous son, the Tongzhi Emperor, had once been. She's able to, Cixi is able to force the Guangxu Emperor to marry a bride from her Yehanara clan, Okay, and for, you know, the next 15-20 years or so, from the mid-1870s to the mid-1890s, Tsisi's power is relatively unchallenged. This is remarkable when you think about it. A woman who is able to accumulate so much power in a Confucian context. Now, at this point, she becomes known as the Empress Dowager. When her son, the Tongzhi Emperor, ascended the throne, she becomes the Empress Dowager. All right, the most powerful title. That any woman in Chinese history can have. You are the mother of the highest ranking man in the land. You, Formally, you outrank the emperor. And on ritual occasions, the emperor has to bow down to you. Okay, Remember, we talked about this. the way For, for a woman to get the most amount of autonomy, uh, autonomy and power and respect in a Chinese context, her husband needs to die young. And she needs to have a young son who she can manipulate or other young male relatives who she can manipulate. Okay, and of course a lot of wealth, (laughs) so she doesn't have to work. And of course, Sisi has a lot of wealth. All right, all right, now, so what does Sisi face? What is she facing? We've talked about before how you don't get an existential crisis until 1895. All right, what I meant when I said that is you don't get a sense of an existential crisis that is related to foreigners. Okay, ah, little caveat there. You don't have a sense of an existential crisis in the Qing dynasty that is related to the impact of the West until 1895, when the West comes in, mediated through Japan. But you did have existential crises of a more traditional nature. Okay? From the moment Sushi comes to power, she inherits serious political crises all throughout the Qing Empire. You know how many rebellions are going on? Internal rebellions have nothing to do with foreigners, okay? Internal rebellions, there are massive ones going on. They begin in the late 1840s, and they extend all the way until the 1870s. This is one reason why Chinese historians uh, are now trying to not give so much attention to things like the Opium War and the impact of the West until much later. Uh, Because from the Qing dynasty perspective, that wasn't the biggest threat. The biggest threat were the traditional inland agrarian rebellions by peasants that Chinese states have always had to deal with when economic situations have gone south, when you have widespread famine and the harvests fail, these sorts of things. All right, so beginning, I think it's 1848, you get the Taiping Rebellion which originates in in the far south. That one's a fascinating one, by the way. You've probably heard about this in some capacity before. A man by the name of Hong Xiuquan keeps trying to take the, civil, the traditional Confucian civil service examination system, fails like five times, and then finally meets uh, missionaries, foreign missionaries way down in the south of China, gets some pamphlets and literature from them, Christian stuff. Uh, then after he fails for the fifth time, he allegedly has a dream in which he realizes he is the younger brother of Jesus. And then he creates this, you know, millenarian movement to drive the barbarian Manchus out of China and restore the Ming dynasty. I remember the sort of that, that, that alignment of Huaxia civilization and Han is something that is uh, usually take coalesces more in the southern lands than it does in the northern lands. Hong Xiuquan embodies that sentiment. And he eventually cre- uh, uh, creates a powerful state that seriously challenges the Qing dynasty in the heartland of china for the next 17 years i think it's not suppressed until the middle of uh, 1864 i think it's something like 1848 or 1849 to uh, 1864 the taiping Re- Re- rebellion taiping meaning the heavenly kingdom okay um you also have the Pan- what's known as the panthe rebellion in the far southwest in yunnan all right largely a muslim rebellion uh chinese-speaking muslims You have Chinese-speaking Muslims in the northwestern province of Gansu rising up in the 1860s as well. Out a little further in Xinjiang, sort of in part stimulated by the rebellions of the Hui, the Chinese-speaking Muslims, the Hui in Gansu. The Hui and the Uyghurs, who aren't known as Uyghurs yet, but it's essentially the same people. The Hui and the Uyghurs out in Xinjiang, the deserts of the Taklamakan Desert, they rise up as well. And a man by the name of Yakub Beg invades from present-day Uzbekistan, the Fergana Valley, and basically um, cuts off Xinjiang from Qing Dynasty control for 15 years. That rebellion goes from 1864 to 1878. You have what's known as the Nian Rebellion, sort of in north-central China, the Anhui region. This is like five or six major rebellions. Tens of millions of people are dying in what are essentially civil wars in the middle three decades of the 19th century. Okay? At the time, many foreign observers said, you know what, the Qing Dynasty's done. The Qing Dynasty's done. They're not going to survive this. This is too much. So how are these internal rebellions suppressed? This is what Cixi and Prince Gong, this is what they were worried about, all right? The Westerners, you know, you think, oh, wow, Qing envoys to the West. That you know, How come they didn't take the, the lessons they should have taken from the West? Well, this is why. Because they're dealing with this shit. Okay, how are these internal rebellions repressed? Two new forces emerge. One, foreigners with a stake in the Qing Dynasty unequal treaties. When the foreigners see, you know, like the Taiping Rebellion taking over huge swaths of southern China along the Yangtze River, they decide... We'll be better off if the Qing stays in power. Because the Qing has shown its willingness to sign treaties that give us a lot of really nice, cushy privileges within China. And we don't want to lose those privileges. And we don't know what these new rebels will be like if they overthrow the Qing. They seem like radicals. We don't really feel comfortable dealing with them. And then we have to reinvent the wheel. We've already got the wheel. Let's just keep the Qing in power. And so the British will actually support the Qing against the Taiping. Some British commanders will fight on the side of Qing dynasty forces that go in to suppress the Taiping Rebellion. It's not like, you know, uh, uh, a decisive ally. They don't turn the tide in any major strategic battles, but there are British soldiers and commanders that go in and support Qing dynasty armies to suppress the Taiping. The foreigners are on the side of the Qing. right? And get used to this, because this is something you're going to see for a long time. Most foreign states, especially the Westerners, not always Russia, but definitely the ones who are the maritime empires. They, would, they don't want to see China go into chaos. They want a united China that is weak. Weak, but united. Okay, If it's too much chaos, if it's anarchy, then you won't be able to exercise the privileges that you've won in war. You don't want that. And you don't want the state to fall apart, obviously, and be overthrown, because then you've got to deal with a new uncertainty of who's going to replace them, and I've got to create new treaties with them all over again. So most foreigners want the Qing to stay in power, and they will support it in the face of internal crises like these rebellions. The second force is even more important, though, than the foreigners. In the heartland, the interior heartland of those 18 provinces, you will get Han landlords, powerful Han landlords. Remember, in the south, they're much more powerful than in the north, too. Powerful Han landlords who will essentially raise their own armies and say, we identify with the Qing. The Qing looks after our interest, even though it's the Manchu dynasty. Remember, it's not all rabid racists in the South. Many people in the central and central north parts of China are fully committed to Manchu rule. I don't see it as barbarian outsiders. These guys raise their own armies, train their own armies, and then march out and help fight against the Taiping Rebellion. And then when the Taiping Rebellion is suppressed, some of them men like Deng Guofan. Very famous statesman, one of these guys who rises to power here, and Zuo so Zongtang, famous now for General Zuo's chicken, some <laughs> of the most insane things I've ever heard. Um, it, the guy who create, who is famous for General Zuo's chicken, uh, initially became famous in the 19th century for helping to suppress these rebellions, raising his own army, suppressing these rebellions, identifying with the Qing dynasty, and then he marches out. He gets sent out to the far northwest to suppress the Muslim rebellions, and he does. Stole Dongtang's armies marching to Xinjiang and bring back Xinjiang into the Qing dynasty fold. Okay, these are the sort of guys who, they were educated, they were wealthy, um, but their, 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 their titles and their status is confirmed after their accomplishments on the battlefield. They're sort of self-made men. They didn't get up through power through the traditional routes of studying for the examination system, taking that, becoming a magistrate, blah, blah, blah. All right, self-made men whose status is confirmed after the fact. So, these two forces together give the Manchus and Cixi, who's leading the, the 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 Qing Dynasty at this point, basically a new lease on power. What is the price of this new lease on power? The introduction of a lot of foreigners who have a stake in China now and are inserting themselves into various parts of your government and have you know treaty privileges, and you got to watch out for them so they don't get in you know scuffles with locals. One of those will happen later and create the Boxer Rebellion. That will be a big big crisis that we're going to get to in a minute. Okay, but the other price was even bigger. Widespread signification. Okay, in exchange for the help of these Han landlords from central China, and in response to the encroachment of foreign empires all along the borders, the Qing dynasty will make the decision to authorize substantial Han migration from the heartland to all the frontiers most notably Manchuria in the far northeast, which they had kept blocked off from Han migration. for They tried to keep it blocked off from massive Han migration for most of the Qing dynasty. They weren't always successful, but they really tried to. Now, even the pretense of trying to stop migration to Manchuria will be abolished, and they will encourage millions of Han, poor Han farmers to go up to Manchuria and cultivate what is, was formerly regarded as the Manchu homeland to the Han, considered a frontier land. Why? Because they think this will give them a better claim to rebut Russia's claims to be trying to encroach on the northeastern parts of China. They'll encourage Han migrants to go to Inner Mongolia, uh, to Xinjiang, to all the borderlands. Okay, And then many of the people who wield real power in the dynasty, the new military generals, it was not going to be the bannermen, the Manchus and Mongols of before, who traditionally had wielded so much power. For one of the first times, it's going to be self-made Han military generals who the the qing court has been forced to recognize their power essentially okay they're loyal they're not going to overthrow the dynasty but they have real power now and it's a power base that exists outside the traditional qing dynasty power base of its bannermen the manchus the mongols and the northern han banners okay so that's how the first existential crisis was overcome foreigners Foreign supporters who want a weak but united Qing dynasty. And Han gentry from the inner provinces. Okay. Now, the second existential crisis begins in 1895. And this is the one I've been sort of ominously alluding to for so long. All right. This is the existential crisis that's related to foreigners, to outsiders. This one comes from the water, from the ocean. And after 1895, after the loss to the Japanese, okay, This is when you start to get a lot of people at the top levels of the Qing dynasty who are starting to say, you know what, we might need to change a lot more (laughs) than just the young. We might need a lot more than just adopting clever inventions of the West. Maybe the problem is deeper. Maybe it's more systematic. Otherwise, how could we have lost to these dwarf barbarians of the Japanese? These people who we always regarded as pirates. How could we have lost a major battle to them? We thought we were doing pretty good with the young stuff. We thought we were adopting all the clever Western inventions. We had our naval shipyards. We have a Navy. Modern military training. We have Western officers. All this sort of stuff. We overcame internal rebellions. We thought things were going well. So she's feeling pretty good about herself. And then we lost to the Japanese. What the the hell? So then people start thinking about this. Officials, uh, educated literati, who are encouraged by sort of the seizure of power by Han landlords and, you know, like Zheng uh, Guofan, Zhou Zongtang, another man, Li Hong Zhang, Zhang These are all men who rise up in the late 19th century and are sort of the heirs of those people who were self-made Han military men in the heartland who helped suppress the rebellions. And now the Qing dynasty is in debt to them. These men, these men and their circles start wondering, do we need to change the form of government? Maybe we should have a constitutional monarchy, not an absolute monarchy. Maybe we need more widespread overhaul of our educational system. Maybe the dynasty needs to change. Maybe the Manchus are the problem. There were all kinds of ideas about what needed to change. And after 1895, people begin to be a little more bold about discussing these things. Not too openly, because suggesting the dynasty should change, or the Manchus are the problem, alright, or the form of government should change, that can still make you lose your head. (laughs) Okay, so you can't be too bold, but the ideas are, are out there now. Okay, and what happens in the next three years, some reformist Confucian officials lobby to gain the ear of the Guangxu Emperor, who's now come of age. He's been, he's been formally the emperor for tw- over 20 years now, but he's had no real power because his aunt, Cixi, has wielded power over him. Okay, uh, the Guangxu Emperor, though, in 1898 is going to start listening to the ideas of a Confucian reformer known as Kang Youwei, Wei. And Kang Youwei Wei will start talking about all these new ideas. He's going to say, you know what? Our essence needs to change too. We need to overhaul our schools. We need to overhaul our military. We need to abolish the civil service exams. Constitutional monarchy, not absolute monarchy. Let's, let's establish some Western style universities, Peking University. Okay, let's start shifting away from Confucian education and more towards Western education. These sorts of things. And the Guangxu Emperor is listening. We can't, we can't have a repeat of 1895 and that humiliating loss to the Japanese. And this stimulates what is known as the 100 days reform effort in the summer of 1898. Technically, it's 103 days, but it's easier to say 100 days reform. Okay, the Guangxu Emperor starts to adopt the ideas of Kang Youwei. Wei and create some memorials and documents that are saying, you know what? Let's seriously consider implementing massive overhaul. We're going to start chipping away at the t at the essence. Okay? Now, how do you think Empress Dowager Cixi is going to respond to all of this? All right. Now, the problem with evaluating Cixi in the last 15 years of the Qing Dynasty is that we often look at it from the point of view of uh, modernization, West versus China. Um, she was a reactionary, feudal person, all right, who couldn't see the light of day. Guangxu was a more enlightened young person who was going to change things for the better for China. You can't think of it that way. You have to think of it in terms of the individual local politics that are going on in each person's position. Okay, Cixi in 1898 has achieved more. From a political sense, than uh, almost any other woman in all of Chinese history has ever achieved, except for Empress Wu, who created her own dynasty in 690 to 705 in the middle of the Tang Dynasty. Okay, other than that, one woman who became an, an empress, Empress Dowager Cixi, is the most powerful woman in Chinese history. Okay, uh, her power depends on the Guangxu Emperor being a puppet. So Cixi isn't necessarily thinking in big terms like this. She is. She is aware of the situation. She's aware of the humiliation of losing to the Japanese. Okay, but first and foremost, she has to make sure she's in charge before she does any massive overhaul. The initiative can't come from the one person who makes it possible for her to have power. Understand what I'm saying here? So she has to take care of that first. When she sees the Guangxu Emperor coming of age, listening to advisors, this is all happening outside of her circle of influence, she freaks out. And she puts an end to the Hundred Days Reform. By rounding up some of the advisors who were with Kang Youwei, executing them. Kang Youwei too, has a price on his head, but he manages to escape, so he's not executed. Okay. The Guangxu Emperor himself, he's put under house arrest. Under Si's orders. Okay. This is serious business. And so she gets the label of reactionary. And totally, in a sense, it is reactionary. Right, but you have to understand... Her personal agenda and why she's doing what she's going to do, and what makes this even more clear is that three years later she'll end up adopting all of these same measures herself. Okay, uh, the key thing is that she was in charge; she was calling the shots when these measures were implemented. That's the key. When the Guangxu Emperor did it, it was not okay. That would that 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 would mean the end. That would spell the end of her position at the top of the political hierarchy. But so long as it comes from herself, she's fine. So it's not so simple in that way. Okay, these are politicians. Politicians can turn on a dime, they'll do whatever's convenient to them. Okay, all right, so Guangxu Emperor is under house arrest. He will essentially have no power again. He'll live another 10 years. I think he dies in 1908, and he'll have no more power anymore. To see, effectively make sure that she uh, 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 maintains her handle on power. Now, what's the next major thing that happens? This is the next major existential crisis. And this is a big one. This is the next most important thing to understand. The Boxer Uprising and the subsequent Boxer War. 1900. Just two years after the suppression of the Hundred Days Reform. You get peasants in Shandong, the Shandong countryside. A little bit to the east, southeast of Beijing. Um, who are very Poor suffering from harvest, starvation, and in their midst are German Catholic missionaries. And when you're starving, suffering, and you're living through great hardship, you start to try to find someone to blame. And foreign missionaries are easy people to blame. They have weird rituals and rites. They sometimes adopt children who have been abandoned in the, in the countryside Uh, because you're you're exercising a pre-modern form of birth control. I can't afford to raise another girl. You put her out, you expose her in in, in the field for her to die. The missionaries, you know, full of compassion. They say, we can't let that happen. These are all God's children. We can convert her. They take her and they raise her as their own. They provide free education to both men and women. And oftentimes women will go and be educated in these foreign missionary establishments, as will boys. Free education. Hey. Okay. So, you know, what are they doing in there? Are they actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, doing voodoo? Weird ritual practices on our children? When one of our ch- ch- children gets sick or dies, maybe it has nothing to do biologically with what the missionaries are doing, but you might suspect it does. Because you don't really know. And so they start suspecting that these are, you know, voodoo sorcerers in our midst doing nefarious things. And, they, and this, 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 this group of desperate peasants starts to practice a form of martial arts. This is how they're going to get the name, the boxers, boxing, boxing boxers. And they're going to believe that they're impervious to bullets. If they do the right rituals and incantations and blah, 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 we can go into battle and we won't be able to be touched by modern implements of warfare. Bullets will bounce right off us. And so their first target are the German missionaries and they start killing them. They start killing the German missionaries. It's, very, it's a very local dispute, local tensions, okay? Not really on a great national, international scale. But as they gain strength in numbers and this rural movement recruits more followers from the impoverished countryside, they come to the attention of the imperial court in Beijing. And of course, once they start killing Germans, they also come to the attention of foreigners. Because the foreigners want compensation and they want the Qing to apologize and they want them to put a stop to this. So it becomes a big incident once they start killing the Germans, even though if the motivations were local. All right, and it's at this point that the boxers start getting bigger and bigger and marching towards Beijing. They're going towards Beijing and being very hostile to any foreigners they see. tzu gets the idea, not a very bright one, and this is gonna be her biggest blunder ever. All right, don't think of gender for a moment, just think of her as a politician and she makes a terrible decision. She sees the boxers and she thinks, This is our one chance to push back against the foreigners. Look, the Chinese people are rising up and killing foreigners. This is our chance to join them and finally deliver a major blow to foreign influence. And she declares war on the foreigners. Terrible decision. Thinking the boxers will help, you know, they can merge with the boxers. What do you think is going to happen? The foreigners say... F you, and they invade Beijing. Okay. Sisi declares war on the foreigners. In practice, this means she sends uh, 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 troops and soldiers and the boxers. They all congregate around the foreign legations, the foreign embassies in Beijing, and lay siege to them. And some of the foreign diplomats are captured. Some are executed. It's a big deal. So the foreigners obviously say we're, they get together and they form an eight-state coalition, including Japan and eight foreign states send their armies into Beijing to lift the siege of the legations in the year 1900, the summer of 1900. And they do. I mean, you know what's going to happen when push comes to shove. The, we know that at this time, the Jap- the combined weight of the Japanese and the foreigners, or any one of those nations individually, is going to beat the Qing dynasty. Okay, and they do. And just like Cixi's husband, Xianfeng, had to flee north to Jehol. In 1860, after the Second Opium War, now Cixi and her court is also going to have to flee. This time they don't go north to Jehol; they go west to Xi'an, major metropolis of Xi'an in Shanxi province. All right, It's to the west, not to the north. And they flee the court, and, and they run away from Beijing and take the court there. All right. Um, and then... The Boxer War, you know, the Boxer War is the the foreign invasion, basically, of Beijing to put an end to the boxers. Most of the boxers are killed. They find out, much to their chagrin, that bullets do not bounce off of their chest. They go right through and kill you. Um, Qing armies are easily defeated, and the court is, runs away. Now the foreigners are in a great position to impose more indemnities on the Qing dynasty, and they do. Hundreds of millions of silver tails. Whew. The, ind- the boxer indemnity is going to be crippling crippling for the next 30 years. You're going to have to pay it off with interest for decades and decades. In fact, in 1911, when you finally have the revolution and a new state, one of the things the foreigners are going to want to make sure that the, that the next state does, they say, are you going to make sure you uphold all the treaties? You're going to continue the boxer indemnities, right? Otherwise, we don't support you. And you need the foreigner support. So that, yeah, 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 we will. Right, it's going to be crippling. The boxer indemnity means also the end of those shared funds, the, xiang, the shared funds, remember, we talked about many, 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 many episodes ago. That was the the, the method of keeping an, an unbalanced empire together. You have poor strategic regions out on the frontier, Tibet, Xinjiang, Mongolia, etc. They require more money for the military presence that you need to send out there. Where are you going to get that money from? You siphon it off from the wealthy interior, interior agricultural provinces in the Jiangnan region the Yangtze region. Those provinces are insanely wealthy, and you transfer funds around to balance things out in your empire. Uh, Boxer indemnity means that Xiexian, those shared funds, are now going to foreigners. And that's going to exacerbate the crisis on the borderlands. And that's going to create a big problem for the 20th century, because borderlands now will have almost no means to defend themselves. And this is how you're going to get foreign countries that are going to start trying to, to chip away, to gnaw away at Manchuria, at Mongolia, which the Russians will successfully take away, at Xinjiang, which the Russians will try to take away um, several times and never quite do it, and then Tibet, which the British will try to take away. And heck, the French will try to take away Yunnan as well. All All along the borders is going to happen now, and the the, the borderland regions are saying, we don't have the money (laughs) to respond to these threats anymore because the boxer indemnity has destroyed our shared funds. Now, how does Xi respond to this? Okay. Well, she's going to do exactly what Guangxu was trying to do three years earlier. It's 1901. The boxer indemnity has been imposed on you. And so now that she's in control and there's no possibility of the Guangxu Emperor, you know, slipping out of her grasp, she adopts what's known as the new policies, Xin Jung, the new policies. And the new policies are basically what they were proposing during the Hundred Days Reform three years earlier. Right, we're going to abolish the civil service examination system that's finally abolished in 1905. Western education, we're going to send delegations abroad to study other you know, Western countries' constitutional systems, decide whether or not what form of monarchy we're going to adopt, you know how we're going to do a constitutional monarchy. We're going to have new modern armies where we bring in Japanese and Western officers and train them systematically on Western lines so that we can actually win the next battle. Okay? All of these sorts of things are part of the Xin Zheng. And Cixi herself also tries to rehabilitate her image during the new policies. And to a certain extent, she's kind of successful. One of my favorite examples comes in 1903. And when the wife of the American ambassador in Beijing uh, suggests to Cixi that she paint her portrait. All right, this is unprecedented. A foreigner painting the portrait of a woman, an empress dowager. There had been Italians and Jesuits who had painted portraits of Qing dynasty emperors 300 years prior. Um, now we're getting an empress. who uh, is going to have her portrait painted by the wife of the American ambassador. She makes her look very young and attractive, by the way. So she is, is getting up there in years by now. Uh, and the portrait looks very attractive. Whitewashes all the wrinkles and everything. Um, and then this portrait, here's the remarkable part. It goes on display at an exhibition in St. Louis, America. In 1904, the following year, Cixi is creating a new public persona for herself—an attractive one at that. All right, in the wake of the Box Rebellion, this is all part of the new policies. Okay, the rehabilitation of the image of China. We're going to modernize now. We're on board. The essence is going to change—not just the young, not just the utility. Now, in the middle of the new policies, both Cixi and Guangxu die. Okay, 1908, I believe it is. The Guangxu Emperor, uh, Cixi, is getting up there in years. I forget exactly how old she is, but she's old. Probably 70s. Um, and she realizes she's going to die soon. And then she dies, and mysteriously, the Guangxu Emperor dies, I believe, one day before her. What a coincidence! The Guangxu Emperor, whose, whose continued subordination to Si was essential for her power, the perpetuation of her power, dies... I think it's literally within 24 hours of when she dies. And I think he goes first too. That can't be a coincidence, right? And many people have suspected it wasn't a coincidence, but we had no proof of that. We had no proof of that. I think it was five, six years ago, there was an article that came out in China in which they said they did a test of, I believe it was mercury. Uh, Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was mercury. A test of mercury levels in the Guangxu Emperor's corpse. And they found that it was like 3,000 times higher than natural levels of mercury that would occur in other corpse. Um, and this seemed to lend credence to the idea that Sisi ordered the poisoning of Guangxu Emperor to make sure that he would not assume power after she died. She knew she was going to die. She knew the end was near. And she needed to make sure that she was able to decide and install the next pliable boy emperor before she went. And so, hey, there's, you're never going to be able to prove these things definitively. But it does appear that the evidence is, is that Sisi arranged for yet another pliable young male adolescent heir to the throne right before she died. And very likely, it seems like, might have poisoned the Guangxu Emperor, her own nephew, to make sure that he died before she died and she could you know, name the next heir. And the next heir ends up being, I think, a three-year-old or a five-year-old boy, Puyi. Pui who's going to have a very tragic life, um, and he's only going to be on the throne for three years, and he's a boy the whole time, um, and power passes to the various regents who are in Sussi's circle as well, other Manchu princes and their consorts and whatnot. Uh, they're going to be the ones who were in power in 1911. Okay, now now we can finally get to the 1911 revolution. I know that was a long, long-winded preamble, right? But it was very important to understand all this stuff. All right, so the central irony of the 1911 revolution is that the post-1901 Qing reforms, the new policy, the Xinjiang, themselves will exacerbate the very forces that ultimately brought down the dynasty. All right, The shining centerpiece of the new policies was known as the New Armies. The new armies, you know, modern Western Japanese trained armies with modern armaments. They can go into battle and after all this training and new weapons and whatnot, they will be the equal of any other soldier on earth. All right. And it was also believed that you can't just take peasants like the boxers and turn them into soldiers. We need to create a new military man from top to bottom, inside out, which means he needs to be educated. He needs to be educated. You didn't usually see this in Chinese history. If you were educated, you were going the civil service route. Okay, and then the military people were taken from different stock, and they often weren't nearly as well educated. Sometimes they were, but often not. And usually, the civil servants had much more prestige and power than the military ones did. Okay, now for one of the first times, they're going to say, even our grunt rank and file soldiers on the ground level should all be highly educated in the new education, Western education, Chinese education. Nationalist education, okay, so these guys are going to be tuned in, they're going to be plugged in to the ideological intellectual ferment that has been consuming the Qing dynasty ever since 1895 and that major existential crisis after you lost to the Japanese, the pamphlets, the literatures, the tea house conversations. The new people who are being recruited, oftentimes they are the sons of wealthy gentry, or the sons of officials. These are, these are men from, you know, quote-unquote, good families, okay? Remember there was a Chinese proverb about something, you know, good men don't go into the army, just like good steel isn't used for nails, or something like that, okay? Uh, same thing with, you know, with this. this. This is overturning that proverb. They're saying, yes, good men should go into the army. There aren't too many times in Chinese history in which it's seen as, you know, a a very prestigious, attractive thing to go into the military. This is one of them. Um, And during the Mao Zedong years, the PLA, the People's Liberation Army, will be another one. Um, And that's about it. That's about it. Usually the military is not seen as prestigious. All right. So the men who are serving in, in the new armies are thinking and debating all these ideas about what to do about China. They say the fate of China rests in our hands, too. We're involved in this. This this isn't just the business of a few people, a few men and women in the Qing court, isolated from view. We also have a say in this. And we have the weapons to make it happen. Now, the new army garrisons that are in the north, there's new army garrisons in most major cities throughout the empire. All the way into Xinjiang, there's there's new army garrisons as well. All right. The new army garrisons that are generally in the north are more supportive of the Qing dynasty, and the Manchus specifically, as you would expect, with that north-south divide. The new armies stationed in the south, as again, as you would expect, are more leaning towards the racist interpretation, the social Darwinist interpretation that has come in via the west, in which they're seeing the Manchus as a backward race that impose their barbarian rule and ignorance on the once enlightened Chinese. They're more plugged into the idea that the Ming was civilized and the Qing was barbarian. And they are encouraged in this belief by the work and propaganda of a man by the name of Sun Yat-sen. Sun Yat-sen will be very huge in 20th century Chinese history. Okay, His reputation will far outstrip most of what he was actually able to do during his lifetime. Sun Yat-sen was a southerner, of course, right? Um, And if you actually dig deep into Sun Yat-sen's writing, you find out that he was a rabid racist, and there's a lot of things about him that are not very attractive at all, and they get whitewashed in the process of making him into a national icon, a national hero during the 20th century. Both the Nationalist Party, Chiang Kai-shek's Nationalist Party on Taiwan, and Mao Zedong's Communist Party will idolize Sun Yat-sen, and they'll both claim descent, ideological descent from him. Okay? Sun Yat-sen, back in the 1890s, was involved in some uprisings against the Qing dynasty. He saw them as Manchu barbarians, sort of the same thing as Hong Xiuquan and the Taiping Rebellion did. Manchu barbarians, standard southern China stuff against northern barbarians. All right, they're the problem. They're holding us back. That's why we're losing to the West. Um, He has some, you know, feudal uprisings that are quickly crushed, um, and he has to flee. He has a price on his head. He's an outcast. Now, Sun Yat-sen didn't really speak northern Chinese Mandarin. He spoke you know, Cantonese in the South, wasn't highly educated, so wasn't plugged into uh, classical Chinese, Confucian discourse and whatnot. And once he's exiled from China on pain of death, he ends up going to Hawaii um, and, and then travels all over Europe and America trying to drum up support to overthrow the Qing dynasty. And the Qing dynasty embassies that have been set up abroad are keeping a close eye on him. And at one point, they even uh, 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 tried to arrest him in the London embassy unsuccessfully. Okay, uh, But Sun Yat-sen gradually will gain the ear of politicians, diplomats in America and Europe, who will say, you know what, he's kind of a whack job, he's a little bit out there, uh, but he might be useful one day. Let's cultivate relations with this guy. <clears throat> Let's cultivate relations with him. He speaks English very well. He actually spoke English better than he would speak Mandarin Chinese, <laughs> and was more highly educated in English than he was even in, in, in any form of Chinese All right. So they like this guy. He's your he's your consummate exile politician who has a great standing and and respect abroad and is virtually unknown in their home. Remember when the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, a lot of the advice and encouragement they got was from a man named Ahmed Chalabi, a man who, you know, an Iraqi exile who hadn't been in Iraq for like 30 years. He has zero base of support in Iraq. You realize once you get there that this guy is useless, and a lot of the things that he's been telling you are outdated and flat out wrong because he has been out of out of Iraq for a very long time. He has no real allies or no, you know anything there, and then you're very disappointed in that. Sun Yat-sen kind of the same. Think of him in that light, okay? He has the prestige of being one of the earliest people who survived a rebellion against the Qing dynasty. That gives him some prestige. Ooh, he's a revolutionary. And he liked to parrot a lot of revolutionary slogans and whatnot. Um, so he's out there. He's circling around, trying to gain support, solicit donations, saying, I'm going to change China. I'm going to make it Western. I'm going to you know, un- uh, undertake a revolution. And they're being polite. They're, listening. they're having dinner with him. And some people are giving him money. But he's not really seriously taken as a potential substitute or replacement for the Qing dynasty. Okay, But his propaganda, the things he says, his name... What he stands for, it circulates around, and that's the sort of thing that the young, educated men from good families in the new armies are listening to nationalist, southern, racist propaganda against the Manchus that says it's not the monarchy, it's not the military, it's not our culture, it's specifically the Manchus. And we are in a social Darwinist race like the Westerners talk about, and the strong races will rise and the and the backward races will fall. The Manchus are a backward race. They've been holding us back for too long, and we need to rise up. All right. Classic southern Huaxia... Sort of, you know, alignment with the Han combined with Western social Darwinism. That's what you're getting here. Okay. Now, we finally set the stage. Here we go. October 10th, 1911. New army soldiers in the garrison at Wuchang, one of the three cities that now make up the the megapolis of Wuhan on the Yangtze River, a furnace-hot city. Okay. Um, They are... Revolutionaries. They have their, these guys are talking about plans to overthrow the dynasty. They're not ready to do it yet, but they're making plans. Some of these people, these, remember, these are members of the new army, men that the Qing dynasty has itself created <laughs> to save the dynasty, are now talking about how to overthrow the backward barbarian Manchu people. All right, a name list of the men who are allied with one another and have signed and have you know taken an oath to be together through life and through death, to, uh, to in, in, in this noble cause, is discovered. A name list of who's involved in this conspiracy against the government is discovered. And when it's discovered by the commanding officers, the rank-and-file new army soldiers say, holy shit, they're going to come and they're going to cut off our heads. It's either now or never, boys. We rise up now, or they're going to arrest us all, and we're all going to be executed, every last one of us. Heck, we're going to get lingering death, most likely. They're not just going to give us the mercy of strangulation or beheading. It's going to be death by slicing. And they rise up. And they have a coup. De, uh, they initiate a coup, and they take over the new army garrison at Wuchang. They find a senior military officer by the name of Li, Li Yuanhong, and they force him... To be their leader. He doesn't really want to be. He's like, oh shit, <laughs> I'm going to get lingering death too. When the armies come in. And they force him to do it, or, or, or they'll kill him. So he says, okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And Li, Li, Li Yuanhong becomes the figurehead, the leader of the Wuchang Uprising in October 10th, 1911. Other garrisons rise up in response, almost all in the south, south of the Yangtze River, or right in the vicinity of the Yangtze River. Okay. And then you get another civil war. And this civil war is essentially north versus south. Kind of like the Taiping civil war was in the middle of the 19th century. And what's going to happen here? It's not so simple. It's not that you have a revolution in the south and it gradually overthrows the entire dynasty. Oh, no, 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 no. It's much more complex than that. The southerners could not win on their own. Remember, the northerners always have greater military strength throughout Chinese history. That's always been the case. It's still the case now. I mean, at this time period, in 1911. So, where are the strongest new armies in the north? They are uh, uh, known as the Beiyang Army, the Northern Ocean Army. And they were previously led and trained and loyal to a man named Yuan Shikai. Get used to that name, Yuan Shikai. We're going to hear about him a little bit more. Yuan Shikai was one of the senior statesmen, Han, senior Han statesman of the late Qing dynasty. He had been, I think, the first... Uh, Qing Dynasty ambassador uh, or resident uh, diplomat in Korea and was in Korea uh, in the uh, lead up to the Sino-Japanese War in 1894. Okay, he comes back and he gets in charge of training one of the best armies in the North. And I think it's right around 1905, 1906 or so, uh, internal court politics, Byzantine crap uh, ends up uh, leading to him being dismissed and he's forced to retire. And Yen Shikai is very bitter about this. But he's not a rebel, and he's not going to use his armies to overthrow the dynasty. So he does go in, in grace, and retires. And in 1911, Yuan Shikai is sitting in retirement at his home. And the Qing court in Beijing says, holy shit, we've got a rebellion in the south. We need to get our best military general on the field to protect us. That's Yuan Shikai. They call him out of retirement and say, please take over your Beiyang army. Go down and suppress the Wuchang uprising. So he does. But Yuan Shikai remembers the old slights, and he's not going to simply do exactly what the Qing dynasty wants him to do. He's going to look out for himself. And what Yuan Shikai effectively does in the next couple months, the next half year, from October 10th, 1911 until February of 1912, when the dynasty formally abdicates, he's going to position himself to become the first president to have the most power in the new state that replaces the Qing dynasty. If Yuan Shikai wanted to, he could have suppressed and destroyed the entire Southern Rebellion and the Qing dynasty could have lived on. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. Okay, he had the superior forces, he would have won. But that's not what he wants. That's not what he wants. He wants more power. He wants enough power so he's not going to be dismissed and forced to go in retirement at the whim of some rival in the imperial court. And so Yen Shikai does the following. He takes his armies down, and he wins battles against the Southerners, and he wins almost all of his battles. But then he pulls back, and he never inflicts the fatal blow. And he lets the Southern armies, when it's convenient, he lets the Southern armies uh, rack up some victories and march a little further north. And then he goes back to the court in Beijing, and he says, I don't know, it's pretty dicey down there. I've won some major victories, but woo, it's tough. And they're thinking, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit, these are southern revolutionaries. They think the Manchus are barbarians. If the the southerners win, Manchus are goners. That already happened in many of the garrisons in the south. You know, the Manchus oftentimes were confined to those garrisons, separate walled-off portions of cities. That's where the garrisons were. Separate garrisons from the new armies. And in the south, many of those Manchu garrisons were immediately targeted for pogroms. Right. Ethnic violence specifically against Manchus. And thousands of Manchus, probably tens of thousands, were slaughtered in the last couple months of 1911, mostly in the south. So the Qing court in Beijing, those Manchus are thinking, no oh shit, if we lose, <laughs> that's what's going to happen to us. They're not going to have any mercy. And our whole dynasty will be treated like that. Yuan Shikai knows this. He's playing both sides. And he eventually brokers an agreement in which he convinces. The Qing court, he says, look, I can't really win, but I can maintain a truce. He could win if he wanted to, but he doesn't want to. I can't really win. Okay? What we need to do is we need to uh, uh, negotiate the best arrangement for you. We need to negotiate the best arrangement for you. And the best arrangement for you guys is to abdicate. Peacefully, while you still can. Under my leadership. And I will work with the southern rebels because they know they can't beat me. They'll be willing to negotiate. And so Yuan Shikai creates a compromise in which the Qing court agrees to abdicate. The southern rebels agree to lay down their arms. And everyone will form a new government, a republic, that embodies the ideals of the new policies. And the Manchus will be treated respectfully. At least Manchus of the imperial court. Many of the Manchus in the garrisons in the provinces will be slaughtered. And the Manchus in the court say, that's a good deal. And they take it. And they sign the Articles of Abdication, giving them favorable treatment. And the Manchus will be allowed, uh, Puyi, the boy emperor, and many eunuchs, and members of the imperial family will be allowed to live in the imperial city uh, for many more years to come. They won't be kicked out, actually, until 1924. They will get a major, huge stipend of millions of taels a year to maintain their lavish lifestyle. And there will be no violence whatsoever against the members of the imperial Manchu Gyoro clan. Okay, you guys can go off in graceful retirement with no violence against you whatsoever. That's pretty rare in a transition between dynasties in Chinese history. Okay, Um, and Yuan Shikai has negotiated this to put himself in the most powerful position. And indeed he is. Now part of the negotiations was that Sun Yat-sen will be allowed to return from exile. Sun Yat-sen, when he hears about the Wuchang uprising, he's in Denver and he reads it in a newspaper. (laughs) In Denver, Colorado. And he rushes on back. And he's able, as part of the negotiations with the Southerners, one of their conditions is that you let Sun Yat-sen back in and he'll be the first president. Yuan Chikai doesn't really like this, but eventually he says, if I give him this concession, then they'll be more willing to go along with it, not realizing that I can easily push uh, uh, Sun Yat-sen aside. See, because he knows that Sun Yat-sen is like a early 20th century version of Ahmed Chalabi in the Iraqi war. He knows that. He knows I have the most powerful army in all of China. Sun Yat-sen doesn't have shit, man. He comes back. He has no. He hasn't been in this country for 20 years. What's he going to do to me? And so he says, sure, we'll have a provisional government in the south. It's going to be in Nanjing. That'll be the new capital. Sun Yat sen can be the first president, blah, blah, blah. And then Yen Shikai immediately pushes him aside and says, get out of here and let the real men do the work of running a, a major complex government. And the capital is retained in Beijing. Sun Yat sen is very quickly driven out of China again. He realizes he has no base of support, no real base of support in China. And Yuan Shikai assumes the presidency of the republic for himself. All right. A masterful performance from his perspective. Again, from a larger perspective of history, looking back, hindsight 2020, you might criticize Yuan Shikai for what he does. From the Just like with Tzu But from the perspective of, if you understand their local politics and how they were trying to maneuver their own career... Uh, What Tsusi does in 1898 makes total sense. What Yuan Shikai does in 1911, 1912 makes total sense for him as well. He basically won, and he put himself in the best position possible. And now he's president. Sun uh, Sun Yat-sen is again kicked out of the country on pain of death. All right. There is a new party, the Guomindang, the Nationalist Party, a party that Sun Yat-sen had been associated with several times throughout his career. That is allowed to start to recruit members, and there is a provision that we're going to have uh, an election in which people, uh, you know, a small 1% of the population or so, but, uh, you know, men with wealth will be able to vote on various delegations that will be in power, okay, and in fact this won't even be the first election, as part of the new policies, the Qing dynasty had had, had uh, overseen the first elections in Chinese history in 1909, I believe it was, okay, so it's not even going to be the first elections, But nonetheless, Yuan Shikai is committed to all this in theory. But eventually, he decides when he sees the results of the election, which are mostly for the Nationalist Party, not for himself, uh, he decides to uh, uh, clamp down on the Nationalist Party, arrest and, and assassinate some of its most prominent members, and then send it into exile and ban the Nationalist Party altogether. So the Nationalist Party goes way back in time to the earliest days of the new state. Uh, and it's been suppressed and sent into exile several times. And it's also associated with, with uh, Sun Yat-sen. But Yuan Shikai uh, basically consolidates his power in the first couple years of the New Republic in 1912. And his major task is he wants to get the provinces to start sending tax revenue back to the government. He says, you know, we've lost the shared funds. The provinces send nothing. Our country's going to descend into anarchy unless we unite once more and we have a strong central government. And he's quite successful over the next four years 3 years 12 13 14 and then part of 15 Yuan Shikai is going to be uh assassinating pushing out of power uh anyone who is seen as a rival to him who is trying to uh, increase provincial strength at the expense of the central government and he manages to succeed in increasing government tax revenue as well in 1912 the provinces sent nothing to Beijing. Zero percent tax revenue. By 1914, three-fourths of all national operating revenue in China are coming from the provinces. That's a, it's a major success story. Yuan Shikai, seen from a revolutionary perspective, from the perspective of the later Nationalist Party, Sun Yat-sen, the communists and whatnot, he's a total feudal reactionary. Okay? Seen from the perspective of someone who's trying to make China strong again, by any means, regardless of the ideology... And create a strong central government that can push back against foreigners, he's actually quite successful. He's quite successful. So why don't we know more about Yuan Shikai today? How come his name isn't nearly as famous as Chiang kai-shek or Sun Yat-sen? Because he is the one of the he is the first statesman of the New Republic to succumb to foreign imperialism. okay? Remember. The Qing dynasty lost its legitimacy. The rulers of the Qing dynasty, those Manchu emperors and the Empress Dowager and whatnot, they had to respond to external and internal threats by making concessions and changing the very fabric of Chinese society and government and education. Okay, and they did that in response to the loss of their political legitimacy that came about as a result of losing major wars with people who were, countries who were seen as inferior to you. That's what happened in 1895. That's what happened in 1901. Okay, you lose these wars with the foreigners, the people become restless. Well, if you can't protect the interest of all of us, then who can? We should overthrow you. Right. and the legitimacy of women of you know women like Tsarist was hurt extensively as a result of these losses in battle now yin shikai is going to be the next victim in which he's built up a lot of political capital he's been quite successful in strengthening the central government and then in 1915 while well, world war one is broken out all the european powers have withdrawn from china japan takes the opportunity they're not truly involved in the warfare of world war one even though they've come on the side of the allies japan takes the opportunity of saying hey the europeans have all left we can finally start to displace the Europeans, replace them with ourselves as the preeminent imperial power. Remember, we had that whole lecture on Japan. They see this as an opportunity to take the place of foreign Western imperialism in China and make Japanese imperialism be preeminent. And they give Yuan Shikai the 21 demands in 1915 while the Europeans are helpless to do anything about it. And Yuan Shikai has no choice but to sign the 21 demands. tiao jian. Okay? And it's a humiliating document. It's one of the most humiliating documents in all of modern Chinese history. It turns vast parts of China into effective economic colonies of Japan. The Westerners don't like it, but they're, they're in the middle of killing millions of their own fellow Europeans on the battlefields of Europe. They don't have any time to worry about what's going on in China in 1915. So Yen Shikai you know, exceeds to the 21 demands reluctantly. A few things are changed to save his face, but ultimately it's terrible. It's terrible. And in order to try to distract his rivals from what he has to do, he has no choice. He can't fight the Japanese. He'll lose immediately. He has no choice. He has to sign it. Or the Japanese will invade. So, in order to sort of salvage the situation and, and distract everyone's attention from the humiliating document he's signing, the most humiliating of all unequal treaties ever signed. He says, I need, I, I need a major spectacle as, as a distraction. You know, good politicians know how to distract the people, right? You you dump bad news on a Friday, so it doesn't really get into the big media cycle. That's what we do today, right? Uh, so you a guy back 100 years ago. You didn't do that. You didn't dump bad news on a Friday. Uh, you declared yourself emperor. <laughs> that, that's what he does. He says, you know what? This republic stuff isn't really going to work. We need a stronger version of a, a, a head of state. And he says, we need to change the form of government back to a monarchy. This this republic isn't really working that well. And the people will respond better to a monarchy. China's better suited to a monarchy. Well, who should be the next monarch? Hmm, let me think. How about me? <laughs> That's right. And he declares himself the Hongxian emperor. And a new dynasty is created. The dynasty, I think, lasts for 60 days. Opposite, you know, his, his rivals in the provinces, the governors and military governors who didn't really want to. Uh, support Yuan Shikai, but felt they had no choice. They see this as a pretext. Oh, he's given us a pretext to rebel against him. He's betrayed the new form of government that we all said we were going to have. He can't return back to an empire anymore, to a monarchy. And they rise up against Yuan Shikai and they force him to abolish the monarchy. He has no political capital whatsoever at this point. The Japanese totally destroyed that. His his distraction didn't work. And he descends into a deep depression and ill physical health. Um, And I think it's in June of 1916, just six months after he declared himself emperor, uh, he dies of uremia. And with Yuan Shikai's death, China descends into warlordism. He was the last person who was capable of recreating a strong central government from the old imperial structure. He was a creature of the old imperial order. And he was doing quite well. Until Japanese imperialism took him down. Okay? This will be the story of modern China prior to 1949. Some new power, some force, political faction, political interest group will try to re-centralize the government, regain control of the revenue of the provinces, and kick out the foreigners. And the most powerful foreigner there will say, I don't think so. We're not going to give up our privileges that easily. And they do something to undermine the legitimacy of the person in power. Happened to the Qing dynasty. Happens to Yen Shikai. It'll happen to Chiang Kai-shek. In which he finally says, I can't give in to the Japanese anymore. So the Japanese invade and you have World War II in China. Okay. This is what happens to Yen Shikai. And with him gone, he's the last strongman. There's no one else who's seen as capable of uniting all of China. Um, And each province, parts of provinces, will descend into control of local warlords. And the warlord era will exist from 1916 to 1928. In some senses, it exists all the way to 1949. But in 1928, that's when Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government will finally make another bid for re-centralization. And they too will be quite successful, just like you're in Shikai. and their success will go on for a full 10 years until 1937, until they in turn are destroyed by foreign imperialism. Um, and then finally, the Chinese Communist Party will complete the recentralization in the 1950s. They will be a major beneficiary of the fact that once they were in power, there were no major imperialist forces that were capable of destroying their political legitimacy. Okay, so that's politics of the 1911 revolution. The political origins, development, and legacy of what happened in the 1911 revolution. All right. Two other things I want to talk about before we're done here. Cultural and ethnic legacies. These we can sum up a little quicker, okay? They're not going to take so long. What is the cultural consequence of the 1911 revolution's failure to achieve its goal of making China strong again? Okay. By the early 1900s, the lesson for most Chinese was, is that in order to save China, we must look for a root cause of our failure, of our weakness, that no one else has yet identified. Because nothing else is working. Okay. After the new policies, you've tried almost everything. You've changed the educational system. You've changed the military. You've had elections. You've thought about doing a constitutional monarchy. You've tried. You, you, you've tried all kinds of stuff. The only thing you haven't really tried yet is culture. Tea. Before I said tea had been changed and whatnot, what I meant was <laughs> still not culture. Okay. Still not gender norms, relations the family all right that's sort of really intimate aspects of culture yes confucian learning was gradually being replaced by western learning but even then it wasn't completely displaced it's still there now it's the very essence of what it means to be chinese in confucian will be under siege after the 1911 revolution okay since 1895 We've had a reform movement led by uh, uh, Qing Dynasty officials and the emperor. That failed. We've had a peasant rebellion in an, interna- in an international war, the Boxer Rebellion and War in 1901 to 1900. That failed. We had a decade-long court-led reform movement, the new policies. That failed. We had a Western-style revolution and recreation of a Western-style republic. That failed. We had a imperial restoration of Yuan Shikai, and there's another restoration by a warlord named Zhang Xun in 1917. That's even more pathetic and doesn't and, and less successful than Yuan Shikai's. That failed. This is becoming a tragic comedy caricature of China. What else have we not tried to remedy China's ills other than culture itself? Something must be wrong with us. So thus begins after 1911. Especially after 1915, with the 21 demands and Yuan Shikai's demise. A search for comprehensive reform in all areas of life. Cultural inheritance, gender relations, life rituals, uh, education, the writing system. Maybe the Chinese script is what's holding us back. Literature, architecture. Architecture all of these things will be the targets of radical reform. It will lead to two separate reform movements that you can kind of fold into one another as being very similar. The new culture movement will begin first. That begins in the early 19-teens. And then after 1919, with the betrayal at Versailles, when uh, uh, German colonial holdings are handed over to the Japanese and not the Chinese at the end of World War I, you'll get the May 4th protest and then the May 4th movement. Both movements, the new cultural movement and the May 4th movement are basically a general widespread questioning of Chinese culture and all of its manifestations. There's something fundamentally wrong with us if we do all these other things and they all fail. Okay, And this will be a, uh, leave a major legacy throughout the 20th century. Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist party will be very radical in its early years have a strong leftist component that will want to consider, hey, yeah, let's reform the Chinese script. And then when they come to power, they'll have more of a conservative reaction. They'll say, no, 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 we want to rehabilitate Confucianism. We don't want to reform the Chinese script. The communists are much more diehard leftists. When they come to power, they too will be in a position, finally, to implement some of the cultural reforms that had been talked about after 1911. And they will undertake some of these. They will go further than anyone else in implementing cultural reform in all areas of Chinese life, sometimes quite heroically and admirably, sometimes quite tragically. Okay, It's not for nothing that in 1966, when Mao Zedong was trying to make a bid to uh, regain power within his party, he initiated something called the Cultural Revolution. That's a direct ideological legacy of the cultural reform movement that it, occurs after 1911 revolution is the failure of the 1911 revolution that convinces people that culture is the last frontier of reform one thing we haven't thoroughly overhauled that must be the problem and once we reform culture everything will be okay and the tragedy of all this is that there is increasing realization today that china's culture probably had nothing to do with china's weakness whatsoever <laughs> it really didn't and that much of china's inheritance was destroyed in vain and it didn't have to be that way Taiwan knows this today, and Taiwan advertises itself as the last bastion of traditional Chinese culture. Because they'll say, hey, under the reactionary rule of conservative Chiang Kai-shek after 1949, we didn't destroy our architecture or temples or any of this like the communists did. And so they like to advertise themselves as that. You want traditional Chinese culture? Come here where we didn't destroy it. Okay, All of them are dealing with the legacy of the New Culture Movement and the May 4th Movement. And in this capacity, one of the names you see uh, mentioned most often is the name of Lu Xun. Surname Lu, L U. Uh, given name X U N. It's actually it's not his original. It's his literary uh, name, not his original birth name. Lu Xun is the most famous, hands down, most famous uh, uh, fic- writer of short stories in all of 20th century China. Okay, um, and he has these famous stories, uh, "Diary of a Madman," in which he his character uh, basically discovers that. All of traditional Chinese culture is a form of cannibalism in which one person is eating the others. That's how corrupt and uh, violent our, our, our horrible past was. It's a, you know, very much an indictment of traditional Chinese culture. Uh, his most famous story is known as the true story of Aqiu, in which Aqiu is this, this, this illiterate rogue bully who is totally untalented and unsuccessful in everything that he does. Um, He's misogynistic towards women, um, and he basically ends up getting swept up in the 1911 revolution and and executed even though he was never really a supporter of it at all because he has no coherent ideology. And uh, Lu Xun basically is saying Aqiu is China. Uh, We're arrogant without cause. We have no pretext to be arrogant and think we're better than everyone else when we have it shoved in our face that other people are superior to us. We justify it. Um, and say, oh, well, the West decided to attack us. Uh, therefore, we're worthy of being attacked by them. That means we're superior. Sort of justify every single failure in their life. And then even in the end, when the 1911 revolution occurs and AQ gets swept up in it, no one learns any lessons from it. It was all for nothing. All right? Lu Xun is very pessimistic and cynical about what's going on. He said, I'm going to write short stories to wake the people up. Because we need to be woken up in a cultural sense, or we're going to lose everything. Finally, ethnic. The ethnic legacy of the 1911 revolution. What did the eradication of Manchu rule portend for the future of the multi-ethnic state? Well, it sounded the final death knell for the long tradition of northern hybrid states in China and elsewhere throughout Eurasia. Okay. Now, you have industrial military power. Okay. Industrial military power is not in any way related to the provision or control over horses and the open step, which gives you mobility. These advantages that were so powerful for 2000 years or so are negated by the industrial revolution. Once you can shoot men on horseback from far away, okay, um, the nomads lose their ability to have an outsized political military footprint over the sedentary populations next to them. Now, it's the sedentary agricultural peoples that were once exploited by the nomads. It's the sedentary agricultural peoples are now able to keep their economic wealth and reinvest it into their own military, local military power and seize political control for themselves. Okay? Okay. And they will be able to now defeat nomads on horseback. Not only that, but the Industrial Revolution will allow them to create new forms of chemicals and fertilizers that will allow for the cultivation of once tender, sensitive stepland that was not suitable for intensive ag- uh, ag- agriculture before. All right. So the nomads are going to fall on very hard times in the late 19th and throughout the 20th century. Okay? Now in China, Han will rule Han throughout the old empire. Remember, this is, this is the interesting part. The biggest empires in Chinese history were created essentially by the northern hybrid states, the nomads. Okay? Now the Han will inherit the empire created by non-Han. Okay? And the Han will now have to learn, really for one of the first times how to govern a multi-ethnic state. Because most of the time when the Han were in control of their own state, it was like the Song or the Ming dynasty, or one of the southern dynasties. It was just Han ruling over Han. Okay? You didn't really have to deal with ethnic difference all that much. Now you do. Now you do. All right. Today, China recognizes 56 ethnic groups. Now that number is arbitrary, and we're going to talk about it in a future lecture, how they came up with that. But regardless, it gives you some idea of the incredible diversity of peoples who exist in China. Okay, the Chinese state today is just as multi-ethnic and complex as it was for Manchu rulers before them. Only now, it's the majority Han who are ruling over the minorities instead of the other way around. So one of the interesting stories and legacies of the 1911 revolution is that the 20th century Han have to learn to rule in multi-ethnic empire in ways that the Manchus and Mongols before them had to learn how to rule a multi-ethnic empire. And this will often mean things like affirmative action for people who are imagined to be vulnerable previously the manchus and mongols thought they were vulnerable we're going to give affirmative action for ourselves okay state-sponsored preservation of ethnic difference like the the banners now the new han-dominated state is going to start thinking about what sort of state-sponsored ethnic difference are we going to uh support in our new state these are all issues we're going to talk about trust me I have my own personal research background is in the Northwestern frontier and the Uyghur minorities. Uh, So we're going to be talking about these things uh, a whole lot. I I, I give you the history of Central China and I give you the history of Frontier China as well. Um, And so we'll have plenty of opportunity to talk about these things as the episodes go on. Okay, now that was a mouthful, but we are finally at long last in the 20th century and we will not go back to the 19th century again as long as we're talking about China. Next time, let's switch gears a little bit. Before we get into the epic rivalry of the Nationalist and Communist Party in the 1920s and 30s, uh, we are going to first change gears a little bit and talk about a major phenomenon that begins to occur during this period, during the chaos and anarchy of China and the weakness of the late Qing Dynasty state. I'm going to be talking about uh, Indiana Jones in China, (laughs) essentially, okay? The transport and removal of archaeological artifacts, of artworks from China to countries abroad. How did it happen? Why did it happen? And what is the legacy for today? In the lost treasures of China, in episode 32 of Beyond Huaxia. Xia.